This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman, and this morning for Catherine Cruz. Next month will mark four years since Hawaii last raised the statewide minimum wage. It's now $10.10, but as the legislature gears up to come back into session next month, this will likely be a topic of discussion and proposed legislation. This week, we spoke with Nate Hicks, a former public school teacher in Hawaii who lives in Palolo and is the founder of Living Wage Hawaii. That's an advocacy group focused on raising the minimum wage to what it considers a livable standard. We started our conversation by talking about what he believes is a livable wage in Hawaii. He says a good starting point for that is to check with what the government has to say. The state does its own study every other year, pretty much calculating what it costs for uh, different groups of people to be able to afford just their basic needs, right? Food, rent, clothing, transportation, things like that. Um, And the state says for a single adult um, living in the state, um, it costs them or they need to be making about $17 or $18 per hour on a full-time job, right? So if they work 40 hours a week, they need about... $35,000 $35,000 a year, which, again, is about 17 or $18 And dollars. this is Bureau of Economic Development and Tourism. Correct. That does the story. Correct. That does the study. You've been working on this issue for a long time, for many years here. You know the counterarguments well that this would cripple small businesses by raising their costs, likely lead to job cuts. About a year ago, Chamber of Commerce Hawaii responded to an op-ed piece that, that you wrote and said $17 an hour would be a death blow to small business here. Yeah, I mean, across the board, um, the right-wing political groups, Chamber of Commerce being one of them, oftentimes come out against minimum wage increases, right? Um, The reality is, in states across the nation uh, who have encouraged or have resulted in minimum wage increases, it's not a death blow, right? The economy keeps chugging along. Businesses adapt as they do to any scenario, right? Businesses have adapted to COVID, which has been a monstrous hit. Um, you know, minimum wage increases are pennies compared to that. Um, and Hawaii's had its own minimum wage increase, right? From 2014 to 2018, minimum wage rose uh, from 7.25 to 10.10, right? A three dollar increase, and our economy grew, right? The GDP went up. Um, wages across the board went up, not just for low income earners but for middle-income earners and high-income earners, right? The, you know, high tide raises all boats. Um, And the number of businesses grew in Hawaii as well, right? So if you just look at the data, uh, minimum wage is good for everybody. Um, That's what it it shows. The small businesses would push back on that and say it's not a political sort of situation, right-wing, left-wing. It's more a survival situation. I'm I'm thinking of restaurants, for example, facing tough labor situation anyway, and their view that, look, we've got a labor situation, we've got labor shortage, which is pushing up wages anyway. We just don't necessarily need the government to put that on in terms of here's the minimum. Yeah, and uh, we definitely understand, you know, they're dealing with their own things, and we're in support of them, right? This is an attack on them in, in the least. This is, again, trying to help everybody. And when you have a short or a labor shortage like you do now, yeah, businesses are using whatever creative methods they can to attract uh, workers. Um, and so right now, right, the minimum wage is ten ten, but you can look around. You can walk, you know, a few blocks and see help wanted starting twelve dollars, thirteen dollars, right. fifteen dollars right. an hour. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that we're asking to push the minimum wage up would help sort of level the playing field for everybody so that they don't have to be jumping through these hoops to try to attack, attract good uh, workers because they're like, oh, you know, they're leery to raise the wage because they're afraid of what it's going to potentially do to their bottom line if somebody else can pay 10 10 But if everybody's paying 12 or 13 or 15 or whatever the case might be, well, then, you know, everything should be uh, good to go. As you say, in terms of the pandemic, the labor shortage now coming out the other side, how has this shifted the discussion, the idea of uh, raising a minimum wage, but what is what is living wage? What does that take? What does sustainability mean when it comes to a basic labor force? Yeah, so I think, you know, nobody is out there hoping that people are working full time and unable to make ends meet, right? I don't think anybody mm. has that as a goal. Oh, I really hope people are exploited where they're struggling, right? People want everybody to be doing well. Um, and this is one of the policies that is necessary to, to make that happen. And so um, when you talk about a living wage, people recognize during this pandemic, we've been dependent upon 
workers across the spectrum to just keep our livelihoods together, right? Fast food workers, restaurant workers, grocery store workers, these are the people making a minimum wage. These are the mm. people at the low end of the spectrum. And we were absolutely dependent upon them during the pandemic. And so the idea that they are, should somehow not be able to put food on their own table, I think, is no longer kind of something that we should consider, right? It's not um, this just oddball group of people that don't, d- don't earn or don't uh, require a living wage. We all know. These people are absolutely necessary to our economy. These are our neighbors. These are our friends. And they should be paired fairly regardless of the job that they're in. Have you seen any other shifts in the discussion around this? Again, you, you've seen the uh, the great resignation, people leaving, not all minimum wage jobs, of course, but just the general idea of that relationship of the worker and the company. Any any shift in that that you're observing in, in Hawaii? Um, I can't point to anything directly specific, but sure. it, it's very clear that, you know, across the board, people are demanding more, demanding better working conditions or whatever the case might be. Um, and people are unwilling to be putting up with these terrible wages, which they never should have had to do in the first place. But they're like, you know, I have other opportunities now. I can make my make a better life for myself without having to do this. And so fortunately, you know, based on the number of factors that have come in because of COVID, people are now having a little more agency, right? With the labor shortage, they're like, oh, I have the opportunity to better myself, um, which is great. Um, I mean, everybody wants people to be doing better, right? It's a win for everybody. So this discussion, this, um, this debate goes to the uh, the legislature coming back uh, next month. The last couple of rounds the Senate has been amenable to the idea of raising minimum wage. It's gone to die in the House, both sides. What may be different this time? What are you looking at in terms of this session? Uh, we're hoping it's going to be better. Um, at the start of the 2020 session, so the January of 2020, um, the House had come out with a bill that they had uh, agreed with the Senate and governor to raise the minimum wage then. Uh, and then two months later, sort of COVID hit, if you'd say. Um, and they kind of threw that out the window. Um, now that we're, you know, almost two years, or we will be two years by the end of session, gone from the start of COVID, um, we're hopeful that the House is kind of um, back in agreement that the minimum wage does need to be raised. Um, we're no longer in um, survival mode as it is. We've had two years to try to figure this COVID out and adapt and things like that. Hopefully they're uh, more amenable to raising the minimum wage. Uh, and we've seen other states do it as well, right? Virginia just last year um, raised their minimum wage by $2 in one one year. Um, so it's not completely out of the ordinary. And also the other states that are on their way to $15 an hour, California, New York, et cetera, Illinois, Pennsylvania, um, they had scheduled increases um, throughout the pandemic already. They had passed the bills in years prior, but there was a scheduled increase in 2021 that went into effect. They didn't cancel the 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 raise due to the pandemic, right? They have another scheduled increase coming in 2022. So the existence of the pandemic has not precluded states from being able to raise the the wage. So hopefully that data will also help uh, give the House some support in making sure that they raise the wage this year. Are you going in with a specific number? Yeah, so from our perspective, it's always a living wage. You know, a full-time worker needs at least enough to make ends meet. Um, and today, that number is around $18 an hour. That's what we would hope for. Um, but we understand uh, we understand the political realities is we're, already, we're only at 1010. Um, you know, 18 is the minimum that workers need, and so that's what we're going to be asking for. Anything else you want to add or uh, that may get lost in this discussion? Uh, well, I always think that um, it's really important people get involved, right? Um, a lot of listeners here are on board and they're probably listening thinking, yeah, this is great. This definitely needs to happen. If they call their legislature, uh, legislator, um, and make sure that they're aware, especially their house, their representative, um, that can go a long way. Um, the unfortunate reality is we hear from a lot of representatives saying, well, I didn't think it was important because my, my, uh, the people in my district haven't been reaching out to me. Um, but you look and you go to polls and overwhelming support, right? Something like um, 80 plus percent of Democrats are on board with raising the minimum wage. And this is an overwhelming Democratic state. And so, um, yeah, making sure people who are out there who care about this are 
um, you know, getting involved, uh, they can go to our website, livingwagehawaii.com, or find us on Instagram or Facebook and make sure that they're up to date and connecting with the, the political process. Nate Hicks, founder of Living Wage Hawaii Advocacy Group, focused on raising the minimum wage in Hawaii to what considers a livable standard. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Over 40% of HPR's programming hours are locally hosted. But what do you do if your listening schedule doesn't line up with your favorite show? You can stream many of our shows on demand. Enjoy the latest episodes of Bridging the Gap, The Early Muse, Connie Kapila Sunday, and more. And dive deep in the archives as well. For the full list, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. It's just a question of how remote you want your remote work to be. I mean, there's something going on every night. Amazing food. People here don't ask you if you like to go outside. They say, what kind of mountain bike do you own? <laughs> I'm Kyle Rizdal, Bend, Oregon, and other points remote. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. As many folks around the island start putting up our Christmas decorations, we want to test your knowledge of holiday songs in today's Backyard Quiz. One could make an argument that Hawaii's best-known Christmas carol was written by Robert Alexander Anderson, who was born in Honolulu in 1894. He attended Punahou School, where he wrote the song Go Punahou his senior year. After high school, he studied electrical and mechanical engineering at Cornell University and was a member of the Cornell University Glee Club. Despite no formal training as a composer, he wrote many songs as a student there, including his first hit song in 1927, Howley Hula. Although he had a very active business career as an adult, Anderson turned his love of songwriting into a very successful hobby. He wrote more than a hundred island songs, including well-known tunes like Lovely Hula Hands and a holiday classic written in 1949, first recorded in 1950. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of this famous holiday song written by Robert Alexander Anderson? Fingers on speed dial a bit. We get a lot of answers. If you know, call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. For the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Landfills are a perpetual challenge and concern across the islands. On Oahu, an advisory committee has about a year and two weeks to recommend a site for the island's next landfill. All four areas now under consideration are above groundwater aquifers. 
Claire Caulfield of Honolulu Civil Beat has been reporting on this story and joins us this morning. And Claire, it seems like the world of public policy considerations on this island has really changed with developments at the Red Hill fuel tanks. And, and now that includes the discussion of landfills. Yes. So there are a number of overlapping um, local, state, and federal laws that determine where a landfill can go. And um, at yesterday's Landfill Advisory Committee meeting, which I covered, um, the discussion was with the Board of Water Supply over the fact that the four remaining areas that are up for consideration are all over a drink all are all over drinking water aquifers, um, and the Board of Water Supply expressed their concern over that. And then, yes, the discussion turned to the fact that, um, you know, the Red Hill crisis could open the door to change some legislation that um, would make it possible that all the landfill sites have to be over the aquifers. Um, maybe we can hear from Ernie Lau, who is the chief engineer at the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, what he said at the meeting yesterday. I think the attention uh, that's right now is being focused on our precious drinking water resources. It may be an opportunity to actually kind of revisit some of the constraints that were created by legislation. Uh, but in terms of uh, trying to prevent contamination of a vital resource, you know, it, it kind of works against it. So the specific piece of legislation he was talking about there um, is Act 73. That was signed into law in 2020. Um, And this regulation um, says that there can't be any landfills built in conservation zones, and all landfills need to be at least a half a mile away from residences, schools, and hospitals. This is a really popular piece of legislation. Um, It was backed by a number of community groups, you know, the Sierra Club, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. Um, But what it meant is that a lot of locations that the Department of Environmental Services was originally looking at for the next landfill were bumped out of consideration. And Claire, you know, the whole idea of landfills and a timeline on this, and you you refer to this throughout your your piece, um, it's it's a very long planning and preparation process that's involved, mm-hmm. many parties involved, and and this is sort of a, a later in the game, if not interruption, but but consideration that's now sort of moved up the chart of the um, of urgency, seemingly. Definitely. So um, the Waimanalo Gold Sanitary Landfill, which is Oahu's only municipal waste landfill, must close by 2028. And it usually takes 10 years, easily 10 years to build a new landfill. So we were already working with a really tight deadline. Um, And then, you know, this new law that came into effect in 2020, um, you know, like I said, that bumped out a lot of sites that the department was considering um, as far back as 2012. And so it did really move up the process. Um, And so there is a possibility that the Landfill Advisory Committee could say, you know, none of these four sites um, are good for the landfill. They're, you know, we're too concerned about the drinking water. We don't want the new landfill to be on any of these sites. But that would mean that um, there would need to be an exception to Act 73 or the law would need to be overturned, um, which, you know, the director of the Honolulu Department of Environmental Services says he doesn't really want to do. Not only does that mean they wouldn't make the 2022 deadline to site a new landfill, um, but, you know, their hands are kind of tied by a lot of that legislation. Um, So, for example, here's what Wesley Yokoyama said at the meeting yesterday. The areas that we are showing, um, those are not preferred areas or anything like that. Those are areas that are allowable by regulation, by legislation, by law, um, by, you know, these are the areas that are left. And so um, the Landfill Advisory Committee is going to have some tough decisions ahead. Um, Their next meeting is slated for February 2022, and that's where they will decide what criteria will be used to rank the landfill sites. Claire Caulfield, thank you. Red Hill may be changing some thinking on policy approach when it comes to uh, clean water. Claire, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for your time. Reporter Claire Caulfield with today's Reality Check. You can find this story and more of her work online at civilbeat.org.
Talking about Red Hill, the Honolulu City Council is meeting today to talk about the Red Hill water crisis. We'll have an update on that story on HPR later this afternoon on All Things Considered. But meanwhile, that topic continues to spark a lot of reaction among listeners, including some emails. Here's one from Thomas Galiotto. Aloha. Regarding Red Hill, there are 20 of these taller-than-a-football-field tanks, each holding 12.5 million gallons of fuel. I would like to visit this massive installation to see it for myself. Forty years ago, the groundwater in Tucson was found to be contaminated with chemicals dating from a military base property previously owned by Howard Hughes. Numerous large scrubbers were installed to remove the chemicals. I was there as a local student studying soil science at the University of Arizona, he writes. says there were a series of articles written about the responsibility of the military in toxic groundwater pollution in Tucson. I think those Red Hill tanks need to be drained immediately and safely and then decommissioned. All pollution must be cleaned up by the federal government. Thanks for the email, Thomas. Dwayne and Kona also wrote in about the same topic, saying... With a military budget of more than $750 billion every single year, $10 billion to fix this is a drop in the bucket, and there's absolutely no reason why they wouldn't be able to do that in less than 25 years. Thanks for that, Dwayne. If you have thoughts about the situation at Red Hill or any other topic guests you hear, we'd love to hear from you. You can call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company committed to supporting the community, supporting local nonprofits, including Navian Hawaii, parhawaii.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mark Cafe, we catch up with our friends over at the Hub Coworking and find out about the Social Impact Incubator Program. We'll learn how companies go through the program and get the tools and best practices to transform education and sustainability in Hawaii. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Mark's Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. The holiday season is nearly in full swing, many of us looking forward to the opportunity to kick back a bit, relax with families at home. But for individuals experiencing domestic violence, that downtime means something entirely different. Nancy Creedman is the CEO of the Domestic Violence Action Center. She says that she's seen many victims accommodate abusive behavior around this time of year. That's especially true for those with children, for fear of breaking up the family during the holidays. Normally, their helpline sees a drop in calls in December with a large uptick in early January. But Creedman says that the pandemic has changed that. This year is a little bit of a wild card because the demand for assistance has been steady since the stay-at-home restrictions were lifted. I think the experience of having been a prisoner of a, an abusive partner was significant and um, motivational for a lot of people who decided, I can't live like this anymore. So we're a little uncertain about what to anticipate for the holidays this year, um, but usually people will stay at home, kids are out of school, um, they're trying to... Um, make the best of a difficult situation. A lot of emphasis in the discussion of different types of domestic abuse is placed on the moment that a person who is experiencing abuse decides to extricate themselves from that situation. 
and what they need in order to find a place where they are safe. Since your organization is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, can we spend a moment to talk not just about that moment, but about what survivors experience and process one year out, five years out, even 10 years out from an abusive situation? You're right. We as a community must focus on the moment of escape because that is clearly the most life-threatening moment when a person tries to flee. Uh, They're at most risk when people are uh, killed. They are killed often in the act of leaving or shortly after they have left. And for those people who have left safely and have stabilized uh, in some fashion, uh, one year is still very new. It's still uh, single parenting is hard. Losing economic support is difficult. Many times people don't have a place where they can go that they can afford. So sometimes they're living with family members, which has its own kinds of uh, challenges. Maybe they are living in a shelter for a period of time and then have to leave there and move someplace else. So they might have had to undertake two or three moves in that one-year period. If they have um, been through the court system and the um, court has ordered visitation, they have probably been in uh, not infrequent contact with their abuser, which places a risk every time they have to uh, drop off or pick up the children. So that uh, trauma uh, and that terror still lives within them as they are uh, making those visits possible. Sometimes the stalking and the harassment lasts up to two years uh, or longer. Uh, but after at the five-year mark, if the person and the, their children, if they have them, has been able to maintain a job or get a job or re- receive uh, financial support in the form of alimony or child support, they are um, much more stable, much more able to single parent uh, effectively and protectively. They are still, however, living with, most of the time, some PTSD. I really don't know too many people who have lived with an abusive partner for any length of time where there was significant tactics of power and control employed and acts of physical and sexual aggression where the person uh, doesn't describe the impact. That's really lifelong. It's life-lasting. One of the most renowned shows on Netflix right now is called Made, and it is about a person, a young woman, who is escaping an abusive situation with her young child, and it is based on the experience of real-life author Stephanie Land. What is the impact of depictions of abusive situations in media? Are they helpful to people who might be trying to process or identify these situations in their own life? Can they be detrimental in some way? We think it's very, very important for the media to stand beside us in helping the community understand how complex an issue, a reality this is for people. When the media helps us um, describe it, characterize it, display it, perform it, people can uh, have a visual appreciation for what people are living with because it's very hard to imagine if you haven't experienced it yourself. At the Domestic Violence Action Center and our other communities' domestic violence programs, we orient our analysis around power and control wheel which has tactics um, that are employed by one partner over the other. So one person may be um, inclined to withhold all the financial resources and give their partner an allowance or check their odometer on the car to make sure that they only went to the market uh, to get food for dinner the way they said they were going to do and that they were given permission to do. These would be things that you wouldn't see, the average person wouldn't see or 
your coworker wouldn't notice or even your family member wouldn't notice. So that maybe in addition to uh, the intimidation that occurs behind closed doors, maybe the uh, victim survivor hasn't been physically hurt, hasn't had any bones broken, but their sentimental family possessions, heirlooms, or just things that they love have been thrown against the wall close to the person's head. Now, that person hasn't been hit, but the implied threat is you could be next. I'm going to destroy something that you like, and I can destroy you. Then there might, in addition to that, be uh, verbal abuse, name-calling. Um, there might be uh, isolation. Every time a person uh, has the opportunity to get together with uh, friends or attend a family uh, celebration or occasion, uh, the abuser might uh, either outright prohibit them from participating or might start a big fight uh, before the event or the occasion or the night out with friends so that the person really doesn't feel like going or doesn't feel it's worth it to incur the wrath of their partner, and so they don't go. And shortly, they have no longer any contact with friends or family or don't have a network of supporters and people that they can go to for a reality check or for support. Let's say after nine months or a year and a half of living like that, they decide they want to leave, but they haven't spoken to their friend in a year and a half. They feel like they can call them and say, I need help. These kinds of um, things I've just described fall on the power and control wheel. The power and control wheel is held together. The spokes of the power and control wheel are held together by the outer rim, which is the sexual uh, violence and the physical violence. So if a person has ever been physically assaulted, or ever been forced to have sex uh, with their partner when they didn't want to, they know that can happen again. So their partner can do all these other things which are much less evident and much less egregious, knowing that if they don't comply or they don't obey or they don't cooperate, their partner will resort to the physical or the sexual aggression again. If someone has not experienced physical or sexual violence, but is in a relationship that has one of those other forms of power and control, economic control, destruction of personal possessions, verbal abuse, or isolation, would you say that their life is still at risk? Oh, definitely. Sometimes... Uh, family members will say, we never saw anything. We had no idea that anything was going on. We never saw Bruce. She never described anything. He was always very kind. And then the next thing you know, um, she's been murdered. I think we have to be very, very careful about believing that we can predict who will and who will not resort to um, committing domestic homicide. You know, it's interesting, in our community at the Domestic Violence Action Center, after somebody has been killed, our helpline is very, very busy the next day. People get frightened. They don't know if the threats their partner has made or the promises their partner has made will come true. I'll never do this to you again after he's been very abusive and violent. Or I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your mother. She doesn't know whether he is going to do that. She knows what he's capable of and she knows what she's already lived with. But she's not sure whether he will make good on those threats. So after somebody has been um, seriously injured or killed, our helpline is very, very busy. Nancy Creedman, founder of the Domestic Violence Action Center, DVAC, speaking with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Pote. That toll-free helpline for DVAC, 800-690-6200. We'll have links on our website for more information later today. 
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with online and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin Tuesday, January 18th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. HPR is seeking a creative and strategic thinker to join the team as our Director of Marketing and Communications. If you are experienced in developing marketing and brand strategies, if you have a way with words and a deep understanding of digital communications, if you're a multitasker and a people person who's passionate about public radio, then we want to hear from you. For more details and how to apply, head to hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org There is a new professional sports team representing our state. It's not what you might be thinking. The Hawaiian Islands Ocean Dragons is a professional esports team created to play in the metaverse. You've heard about esports or competitive video gaming on our program in the past, but if you're wondering what exactly the metaverse is, well, so are we. The conversations Russell Subiona sat down with the creator of the team, Oregon native Justin Locke, to learn more. Locke is fluent in Olelo, Hawaii. It's a language his family is familiar with. His grandfather was stationed at Fort Kamehameha on Oahu during the 1940s and learned to speak it. Here's Locke describing what the metaverse is, how it can potentially benefit Hawaii students, and help preserve the Hawaiian language. You're the creator of one of the first professional metaverse esports teams, the Hawaiian Islands Ocean Dragons. We've talked about esports and playing video games professionally on our show before, but can you talk about what the metaverse is? It's a great question, Mahalo. First, from a technological standpoint, think of the metaverse as the next evolution of the internet. And there are three fundamental principles when I say the next evolution of the internet. Number one, the graphics is much more advanced. So it'll be 3D graphics. So those of you that are either into gaming or have young people in your family, that's the graphics where it's truly three looking and that's the new normal. The second fundamental tenet of the metaverse is it's blocked by a different type of technology called a blockchain. And at a first sentence summary, the blockchain is a way where decisions are democratized through math, not through a company. And this will be a very different way that information and economics and computer science will be done in the future. But just for now, understand that the metaverse is backed by a decentralized way of decision-making that can't be manipulated by a single company nor a single person. The third, and this is why I think it's very empowering for smaller states with rich cultures like Hawaii, like Oregon, is that the metaverse also is all-encompassing with all the new future tech that used to be in different pieces. So what do I mean? It's baked in with a cryptocurrency. You have the ability to build things that you can then actually have manufactured. It's also a way to have a very low entrance barrier. So you could have your Ohana all across the world and they can log in for free. So that's the technological side of it. And I would just give one quick use case, which will be many, which is if we were to talk about how to make this tangible, I believe someday mid-decade Kamehameha schools will have a metaverse presence. It, won't it will not replace the Kamehameha school system, but it will be an additional way of learning where not only can the students and teachers and families interact, but you may actually have a Kamehameha cryptocurrency where students can buy online books or create online art. You may have the ability to design things in the metaverse that then the, the art program can print out. So it really is an amplification of technology, but it should never be a replacement to the real world interactions that make us who we are. Yeah, I'm interested to know how someone would access the, the metaverse. You mentioned earlier that it's a place that people can go to for free. It sounds like it's, you know, there's no ticket that you have to pay at the gate and, and, I, and it's very inclusive and very democratic. 
but the technology needed to access it. Do you need the computer? Do you need a laptop? Do you need like virtual reality goggles? What kind of equipment do you need to access? Well, I would say that first off, the saying accessing the metaverse is basically like saying going on a website. Okay. So it is browser built. Typically, because there are more advanced type of graphics, you would want to have a faster laptop. But to give people just context, I travel a lot with work. I have right now a $300 Chromebook, which I'm talking to you at. My $300 Chromebook gives me full real-time access to the metaverse. So it's nothing that you have to go and invest buying um, a large amount for. There are, like any type of gaming experience, there are options to use virtual reality goggles, smartware. But on a very base thing, you could go down to the Honolulu Public Library and access the metaverse. Now, the metaverse is like saying different websites. So, for example, one metaverse that's pretty mature, it's three years old, which your technology is like a generation, is called the Central Land. And that's where um, currently that's the most mature in terms of how people can access it. I'll send the hyperlink. I also want to just share with your listeners that. I'm not sort of a spokesperson for this, so I, I'm not here to push any one brand per se, but it is like the same thing as saying like how you would access your online community college. I would also expect that as hardware gets more mature in the middle of the decade, it'll be much more user-friendly to access complex metaverses on the next generations of phones. But right now it's still kind of the technology is moving faster than the hardware. And the potential for Hawaii teams, whether they be from local schools or universities or Hawaii-based teams like, like the Hawaiian Islands, Ocean Dragons, this platform could potentially be a not just an entertainment experience, but it could be a learning experience as well. Is that right? Correct. And, and I, I love the question. Let's take a use case. I'm um, a 47-year young minor league baseball player at heart, although I don't feel as much as the number says. But when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, AAA baseball was very robust in Hawaii. And, you know, there were professional sports that even in a time when travel was more expensive. So what I would say is as a use case is there are twofold that I could see, you know, the different Hawaiian communities to really leverage the metaverse. Number one, you know, the established collegiate and high school and junior high school programs. So I think that the metaverse would not only offer a chance for athletes to really train and collaborate, but the metaverse also allows a lot of more complex data processing, big data. So if let's take the use case for, you know, Hawaii football, I see a, a, a time where the coaches will have much more big data, what if scenarios scouting for when they play Wyoming next year. Mm-hmm when the Boise State match, because it's a much more robust computer system. Uh, But I would also say on the local side, it's a chance for the communities, like let's say you're a charter school and you really want to not only connect with the community, but you want to be true to the tenets of your charter school. So let's say that your charter school is really passionate about teaching Olelo Hawaii. You could use a metaverse to help folks not only learn the language, but experience the aloha spirit and to really interact with it and grow in a very dynamic way. So from a sports perspective, you know, the the biggest thing that I would just hope that your listeners take is that the metaverse is not about dumping a bunch of money into something. It's not about hiring consultants. It's about amplifying more of who you are in a more digital, robust platform. But I do see, as we've seen, you know, the coronavirus has been particularly challenging in Hawaii and Oregon in terms of who's allowed to see events. That could be a great augmentation where you could have uh, different ways of having sports off season to participate in a remote setting. This is pretty exciting. As a young guy, you know, just getting into Nintendo and PlayStation, I was always hoping for something like this, for an opportunity to be able to get into a world to play with other people or to learn things that I wouldn't be able to, to learn it in a more like 3D manner. And so this this is pretty exciting to learn. And it sounds like we're just at the outset. And as time goes on, it sounds like this will be something that becomes a lot more mainstream and finds a lot more uses. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about the potentials for the metaverse or about your team specifically? Well, I would say first, if, and I'm happy to always, Russell, work with you is if you're listeners ever have questions, I'm happy to either work with you to answer them or have folks 
you know, Ping Mi, the whole goal here is to, to democratize and empower. I would say there are three key takeaways for the listeners. Number one is if anyone comes to you asking for money or entrance barriers or making the metaverse sound complicated, they are not representing what it's about. So number one, this is the most democratized open platform we've seen in our lifetime. The second thing that I'd like to kind of my call to action for, you know, the greater Hawaii culture, but also the subcultures is don't mimic what a corporation says or what I say or what anyone says a metaverse should be. You are the metaverse. It really is, think about all of the, the areas of who you are, who your family, your community, the principles that you care about. Start there with your use cases, and then you will see that the metaverse is more of an unlock. It should not be something that you have to fit into a corporate definition. And the third thing is, and, and this, you know, as uh, my grandfather, who was a Kamehameha boxing champion, myself, relatively new to America, and although ethnically I'm Italian, you know, I grew up where English was not spoken in my household. It was Italian, Russian, and my grandfather brought the Hawaiian language. What I would really say is, I think this is a huge opportunity authentically for the different Hawaiian ohana to really make sure that language stays alive, current, vibrant, art, community, communications. So I would say that, especially for all of us who have, you know, older members of the family, get them involved in the metaverse too, because they have a vibrant and rich and important story that I believe can last long beyond our years. Justin, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your insight. Mahalo, brother. Thank you. Justin Locke, creator of the Hawaiian Islands Ocean Dragons, talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link that you can use to start exploring the metaverse on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That'll go up later today. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We've got a real hoot of a Manu Minute for you, thanks to recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to Hawaii's short-eared owl. Kueo, or Hawaiian short-eared owl, is our only native owl and is important in Hawaiian culture as an almakua. Kueo are active mainly during the day, unlike the more common barn owl, which is mostly seen at night and has a striking white face. Kueo spend a majority of their time soaring over open grassy areas hunting for small mammals such as mice and rats. They're doing well on most of the Hawaiian islands, but it's becoming more difficult to hear the call of the pueo on Oahu, where they're considered an endangered subspecies. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Lane Yoshida in support of the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. Learn more about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know the name of the famous holiday song written by Hawaii's Robert Alexander Anderson. According to legend, Anderson was inspired to write it in 1949 after a co-worker asked him why there were no Hawaiian Christmas songs. She went on to say, they all take the church hymns and they put Hawaiian words to the hymns, but there's no original melody. Anderson thought it was such a good idea that over the next few days he put the words and music on paper, and we've been singing it ever since. The song was first recorded by Anderson's golf partner, Bing Crosby, who liked it so much he recorded it with the Andrews sisters in 1950. He also made it part of his famous 1955 compilation album, Merry Christmas. 
Since then, it's been covered by everyone from Don Ho to Paul Funga, from the Beach Boys to Jimmy Buffett. If you haven't figured it out, here's your final clue. Malakalikimaka is a thing to say On a bright Hawaiian Christmas day That's the island greeting that we send to you From the land where palm trees sway of course, that's Meli Kalikimaka. The answer to today's Banker Quiz, a lot of you know it, but only one got in first. Alice Tucker from Wildlife is the winner today. If you have a backyard Quiz you'd like to share, you can write it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Meli Kalikimaka is a thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day time for us to go, but tomorrow please join us for a wide-ranging discussion with the president and CEO of a leading Hawaii retailer, someone who keeps a close eye on everything from consumer spending and tourism to envisioning the future of Hawaii, Paul Kasasa of ABC Stores, our guest tomorrow on The Conversation. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.